Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big, we go all night, and here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hello and welcome to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribute on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas on the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. 95.1 FM and AM 760 in Hawaii. It's Friday. That can only mean one thing. It's Legends of Sport Friday. It's Andy Bernstein. Hey Andy, how are you? I'm great, Rush. How you doing, pal? I'm good. You're uh, heading back to Los Angeles for Game 3 of an exciting Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Denver Nuggets. But i got to be honest with you, Friday, I'm very excited. I'm heading to Crypto.com Arena, the Sparks, beginning the season against the Phoenix Mercury. And I remember way back in the day, I actually was with my father at the Forum. We won tickets. New York Liberty, Los Angeles Sparks. Very first game of the WNBA. Take me back to that day. What do you remember about the very first game of this brand new league? Well, it was was a great moment in sports history, especially women's sports history, but sports history in general. You know, um, working for the league then and now, but especially then, we all knew David Stern's vision and everyone was charged to work towards making that happen, making the WNBA an actual reality. And on that day um, in June uh, 1997, you know, Val Ackerman, then the president of the league, tossed up the very first ball between the Liberty and the Sparks. And and the rest is history. And a little bit of trivia. Um, You might know this, but I'll ask anyway. Who scored the first points in WNBA history? Oh, man. I don't know. I'm going to guess Lisa Leslie, but I have no idea. Well, it was in that game, but you're wrong about Lisa. It was Penny Toller. Ah, Penny Toller, GM of the uh, Sparks. That's right. That's wow. right. And one of the two retired Sparks jerseys up on the wall at Crypto.com Arena. That is so cool. So you did have a chance <laughs> in a classic episode talking to the first president commissioner of the league, Badal um, Hackerman, who's still a very instrumental voice in sports. Now with the Big East, tell me about that conversation again. It is so tough to navigate a brand new league, but it is still thriving. And really, it's as popular now as it's ever been. Well, it was a great conversation. First of all, it was in the first season of the Legends of Sport podcast. So that was six, seven years ago. And Val was so gracious to come on as a guest. I, I really had no track record at that point <laughs> as a podcast host. But uh, Val and I go way back, man. She wrote my very first contract as wow. a staff, at, uh, yeah, as a staff attorney for the NBA in 1986. Wow. I, I, I'm sorry, Val, if I'm aging you, if you listen to this. But um, she wrote that contract. We stayed friends. Um, I watched her career literally skyrocket, uh, you know, in the NBA. And 
And David Stern, um, she t- talks about in the podcast, didn't give her a choice. He <laughs> just said, this, this, this is yours. Make it happen. <laughs> so, you know, together with uh, Russ Granick, Gary Bettman, the great Rick Welts, you know, Val, David, everyone built the WNBA from the ground up. And, it, you know, back in those days, as you remember, um, each WNBA franchise was owned by the NBA franchise yeah. in that city and played in those arenas, right? Mm-hmm. So things have changed quite a bit since then. I think the Sparks and the Mercury might be the only two teams, I might be wrong, but they might be the only two teams who still play in NBA arenas. So the That's league right. has really gone bananas. I mean, the following, you know, women's sports in general with the USA team, um, you know, the first the first one in 1996, and, and then, of course, every gold medal after that, and women's soccer and just women's sports in general. It's, it's just a great testament to a vision being realized, and I'm glad to have been a part of it. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the growth of the sport, by the way, I mean, they uh, will likely next put a team in Toronto. They had a preseason game in Toronto, sold out, sold out Air Canada Centre. So just when you talk about the growth of the game and people being so excited for it. But, um, yeah, without any further ado, let's listen. Uh, Now on the uh, heels of another amazing WNBA season, it's Legends of Sport Friday, a classic episode. First WNBA president, Val Hackerman. You know, Val, you you had your two daughters grow up in these sports environments, and I know you grew up in a similar environment in New Jersey. Can you talk a little bit about your beginning? Of course, we want to get to, uh, of course, the Big East commissioner uh, position and, and uh, you know, WNBA, but we'd love to hear about growing up in New Jersey and, and how your family stressed athletics to you and your brother. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I was very fortunate that uh, my dad um, was um, very interested in sports, as was my grandfather, his father, um, sort of locally. My, my dad was a high school athletics director, uh, was a basketball referee. Him, he was himself an athlete um, growing up in New Jersey. Um, and so at a time when, in the late 60s, uh, when there weren't many sports opportunities for girls, this is, you know, well pre-Title IX, mm-hmm. you know, my dad took a, an interest um, in, you know, in me and my interest in sport. And so we did a lot of um, <clears throat> what I call sort of backyard and basement stuff. You know, we, I had a younger brother, and my dad would sort of throw, you know, footballs at us, and we had a basket hoop in the driveway, and... Mm-hmm badminton net in the backyard and all that stuff and so he you know the combination of him engaging with us uh but also being supportive you know later in life he was the ad at my high school he you know had a big hand in girls sports in my area you know during those years um and then of course you know very supportive as i was going through college and and beyond so uh i think family really does matter for young kids um, in terms of encouragement and support, and that was certainly the case uh, for me. And, you know, my husband and I, my, my kids aren't as into sports as I was, but we, we certainly made that part of our childhood. And so I think for, you know, anybody listening who's a parent, um, no, no, you can have a huge impact um, on your daughters, especially if, you, uh, if you're supportive and encouraging. Yeah, you know, you, you wound up playing field hockey, running track, playing basketball all year round. And, um, but you had, you had this 
mini trauma you're in seventh grade can can you talk a little bit about that because it seems like it was kind of a, a turning point early on in your life well maybe you know it, it was in a way but also a sign of the times you probably you've done your research clearly but the, the <laughs> anecdote my modest anecdote here is that um in my junior high school there, there were no sports teams for girls mm-hmm. um this was you know before all that it wasn't until i got to high school in ninth grade that there were a few teams to try out for but in junior high not so but there was a cheerleading squad, mm-hmm. uh, of course, to support mostly the boys' basketball team. Hmm. And so, because that was the only offering I tried out, and the trauma was that I didn't make the team. <laughs> you know, I got cut, uh, which was just a blow. I yeah. mean, I, yeah. I think it was less about the cheerleading, because I don't think I was cut out for that anyway. But the fact that I had tried for something, I actually did try. You know, I did a lot of rehearsing of the cheer they assigned, hmm. and then didn't make the team was kind of a, you know, a, a real ego hit there. So... Um, but that was then, and then, mm. as I said, I got, I got to high school the next year, and they had um, they had you know more offerings. I, I played field hockey, which I played straight through high school. Um, basketball, of course, I ran track, and then my my small town in New Jersey also had a community pool that had a uh, swim team, and that was actually for a while my my favorite sport, my best sport. Mm. Uh, but I didn't pursue it, you know, once I got to high school and, you know, I couldn't do the year-round stuff as I did earlier. So um, that was, again, sort of, uh, you know, that was the tale uh, of girls' sports in mm-hmm. the, you know, in the 70s. And then, of course, Title IX was passed and I, you know, went on to play in college and so on. But but it was a very different time then and it's good to see that that's, you know, that's a thing of the past. Yeah, sure. No, you know, the reason I, I bring it up is I think about, you know, we we speak with a lot of athletes and executives about kind of what if, you know, and what if you made the cheerleading team and, and what if you stuck with it and what if you didn't wind up playing basketball at UVA. I mean, what a what a blessing in disguise for women everywhere that it kind of worked out the way it, it worked out. I, I mean, you were one of the first recipients at UVA uh, of Title IX and one of the first uh, athletic scholarships. What were time management, what were some of those time management skills you accrued being a student athlete there? Well, I, you know, I tell every student athlete today, you're getting pretty nearly the best possible training uh, for what real life is going to be like. And I think the main reason is because of the juggling that they have to do, you know, trying to fit into 24 hours, um, you know, uh, academics, practice and or games, the other stuff besides practice, which could be uh, conditioning work or tape review or whatever now, um, having a social life, eating and sleeping, um, all have to be crammed into those 24 hours. And so that, you know, that's a big deal um, to try to figure out how to do that. And um, it's a big issue now in college sports. The NCAAs actually had to change their rules around that because some of it had gotten out of hand, and they needed to get the the horse back in the barn mm-hmm. a bit with how much time uh, student athletes do spend on all that, particularly the stu- the athlete part. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, it was no different when I was playing. You know, thirty some odd years ago, it was just part of the price you paid for being a scholarship athlete. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, as I said, the benefit, the silver lining was it, do, it does prepare you for, you know, uh, life in the real world. I mean, every day, I'm sure you guys have the same sort of lives, but every day for me is lists, checking things off lists, <laughs> yeah. doing the list <laughs> to change the priority, <laughs> yeah. trying to get everything done, getting yeah. up some sleep or a meal or whatever to do it. Um, so, you know, if there's a silver lining, I guess, in that is that it is a time management is an important skill that you 
carry with you throughout your days. I know you were you were a BA in political and, and social thought, and you wound up at one of your first jobs as an, an attorney. But did you realize back then at UVA that your calling would be to bring women's basketball to the next level? Was it even a an outside thought in your head that you'd take on this kind of leadership role? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, um, you know, when I, you mentioned, I, I, I do have a law degree. Uh, when I was at Virginia, um, I, I wound up with a, what I guess you call a pre-law major. Interestingly, I, I was originally interested in marine biology, <laughs> but I couldn't fit the labs in. I mean, the labs <laughs> were in the afternoon. It conflicted with the practice schedule, which is an oft-cited complaint that student-athletes have today. Um, but, you know, I had the same thing. So I switched over, it was probably for the best, to a, uh, a liberal arts degree, which I treasure to this day. Um, and that did give me a great foundation for, eventually, for law school. I played um, in between college and law school. I spent a year playing uh, professional basketball in France. There mm-hmm. was no pro league here that was, you know, stable enough to join. So I, I did that. Um, and then, you know, I, w- I went on to law school, and no, I had no vision of my, my future. I mean, frankly, I just, I did want to work in sports, um, and at the time, that mostly meant being an agent, if you wanted to combine sports and the law. It, it meant, you know, that was the, those were the known careers that you would be, a you would be into player representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of an embryonic field at that time. There were, a few small legal departments at the leagues, and I was lucky enough to join a very good one later at the NBA. Um, but I mostly wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, sports, I didn't have a great, you know, uh, handle on what that would be like to be a, a lawyer in the sports field. Mm-hmm. And then had no idea, you know, that my path would take me where, where it has, particularly as it relates to women in sports. Well, Val, when I think about our history together, and, and this is no news to you, but <laughs> it is to our listeners, you and I met way back in the mid '80s, right? When you joined the right. and you joined yeah. the NBA, and uh, they plopped uh, the, a contract on you at uh, your desk for the first uh, official NBA photographer, which happened to be me. And um, I never, I'll never forget. We're like bonded. We're you know, I know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. I this. And I still yeah. have, I obviously, still have that contract. Yeah. Um, and it's been a you know great ride for both of us. But um, when I think about you, Val, I think about how you honestly were a trailblazer. I mean, in 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 everything that you've done in your career. But if can we talk about the genesis of the WNBA? Like, when did that first start being discussed, and how did you get into the mix, and how was that decision made that you would be the president? Well, first, let me just say, Andy, it's been an honor, too, to have gotten to know you. I oh, mean, for the you. listeners here, um, you know, Andy, uh, best in business, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. In I terms agree. Of what, you know, Thank you. Craft. Thank you. And, um, you know, I don't, think I've, I don't think I've been to any or many um, basketball events where you haven't been roaming the sidelines <laughs> with, with equipment in hand. So if I go to a game and you're not there, something's wrong. You, know, <laughs> you need somebody to, me, I'm, to I'm annoy like, oh, you and sure. harass you with a camera. <laughs> yeah, it's just something I expect. But... But to answer the question about the WNBA, a long, long story. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. take it's a book, or yeah. a movie, or something. But I, I would say a couple things. One is I give all the credit to David because I think for him, I mean, I joined David the Stern. NBA yeah. actually, mm-hmm. David Stern. Mm-hmm. I mean, I joined in '88. Uh, he'd been commissioner, of course, since '84. Mm-hmm. And I like to say I think he had this idea from day one of his 
administration mm-hmm. that there'd someday be a, a pro league that, that the NBA would be fronting, a pro league for women. Mm-hmm. And it was just a question of when, yeah. not if, but when. So that's sort of one. Two, um, you know, where, where the roots really lie, mostly, I'd, I'd say, Andy, um, in, in our relationship with USA Basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you, as you know, mm-hmm. you know, we started supporting them in 92 with the first Dream Team. Mm-hmm. I was functioning as a liaison with them for that, and then in 94, 96. And while we started out on the men's side, you know, it quickly became apparent to, to people like me and Russ Granick, who Andy knows well, former mm-hmm. deputy commissioner, that there was an opportunity there on the women's side as well to support the women's national team. Mm-hmm. And that really began to happen in 1995 mm-hmm. when the NBA began uh, a relationship on the women's side to support the 96 women's Olympic team that played in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, our support of them, uh, our subsidization of that team, our growing knowledge base because of our involvement that I, I think really paved the way mm-hmm. for the the launch of the WNBA, which we timed to coincide with Atlanta Olympics. So we came out of Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, with the announcement mm-hmm. the year before Atlanta. Um, uh, I and others were working internally, quietly on a on a plan mm-hmm. for for a league that would launch. Um, following the Olympics, playing in the summer, fronted by the NBA, you know, using NBA teams as the operators and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, at that time, strong relationships with the women's basketball community because of my playing days and people I knew in the sport that were very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, David was the green light man. You mm-hmm. know, he was the one that said, okay, we're going to do this, got the owners lined up, and, you know, it was left to others in the office, um, including Russ, and Adam was involved, and Steve Mills, and Rick Welts, of course, Gary Stevens, and so many others, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of get the details laid down. Right, right. So it was really, I'd say, you know, the early 90s, as women's basketball at the collegiate level was cresting. I mean, you had the Final Four, UConn, Tennessee, all these great things happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think we were smart in that we were capitalizing on on that growing interest. Mm-hmm. What lessons did David learn teach you that you took with you to the WNBA as, as founding, well, well, founding that league? Yeah, I mean, so many. There's just so many. I mean, I would put at the top of the list, attention to detail, and you'll laugh. I mean, David was <laughs> a micromanager in every sense of the word, for someone so visionary that he could also be so micromanaging. <laughs> yeah. Sort of breathtaking. Yeah. But he, you know, he knew, you know, devil was often in the details, and he could get, even the best ideas could get, you know, derailed hmm. if the details weren't, weren't, weren't tended to. So I would say that. Um, and, and I would just say, you know, David's intellectual curiosity, I mean, his, just his thirst, he just wanted to know everything. Mm. I mean, every meeting with him was an inquisition. You'd go in, and he would be sort of like a Supreme Court justice, just firing questions at you, yeah. um, interrupting sentences so that he could ask the next question. And God forbid you weren't prepared, right, in exactly. some way. Exactly. Yeah. And, and exactly. Yeah. I mean, the lesson of preparation. Mm-hmm. If you're going in to visit, you know, meet your boss, you better have all the answers in your head before you get in there. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have to pivot quickly. Right. So I, I would say, you know, just the breadth of his knowledge, him being in front of things with women, with technology, internationally, of course, the NBA capitalizing so quickly on the Dream Team, which really paved the way globally for us in the early 90s. Hmm. Just, you know, just an icon um, in every sense of the word. And, you know, and to this day, a mentor and a friend. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at David Stern, Gary Bettman, who's your, your first boss at the NBA. Why, why do lawyers make such good commissioners. I know Rob Manfred at MLB is, is, was a former lawyer. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Is it the same skill set? 
Well, I think it's a helpful skill set is what I would say. I mean, it's not everything you have to worry about, but I think there are so many you know, legal pitfalls intertwined with, um, with the business world, one, and with the sports world, two, um, that it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's helpful, mm-hmm. one, to have some grounding in, you know, labor and antitrust and intellectual property rights and, and so on. Um, but also, I think with, with lawyers, there is a methodology. Um, even if you're not doing the, the law thing, mm-hmm. you're still attacking a problem in a certain way. You're mm-hmm. kind of thinking through the issues. You're trying to say, okay, is there a precedent for this? Did mm-hmm. somebody already do this? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the, is there a way of doing this that's tried and true? And if so, let's just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, having the, you know, the bandwidth and the, you know, the brain cells to sort of think out, okay, but that's the legal side. What are the PR issues? What are the relationship issues? Mm-hmm. What are the political issues? Yeah. What are the marketing issues? What are the revenue implications? All right, let's leave it there for now. Again, another amazing uh, conversation on Legends of Sport Friday. First, WNBA President Commissioner Val Ackerman talking about the league, its beginnings, its growth. Again, it is more popular now than it's ever been before. And by the way, a part of that is the popularity of women's college basketball. So now you're very familiar with these players in college. You're very excited about the draft. You're looking forward to where they're going. So I'm really excited to see the growth of the league and how far it goes. Uh, But let's leave it there for now when we come back. More Legends of Sport Friday with Val Ackerman when we come back right here on the Mightier 1090 in Southern California, the Bet in Las Vegas, and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. We'll be right back with the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big. We go all night. And here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Welcome back to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas on the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. 95.1 FM and AM 716 Hawaii. Just as a reminder, if you have a question or comment, you just want to win tickets to an upcoming game in Southern California, Las Vegas or Hawaii, call our hotline. 310-400-0340. All right, it's Legends of Sport Friday. Back with Andy Bernstein. Hey, Andy, again, we only played just a snippet of these amazing conversations. How can the listeners listen to not only this week's episode, but all the amazing conversations that you've had? Yeah, thanks, Arash. We, uh, we're on every podcast platform known to man. <laughs> but uh, our, our home base, of course, is iHeart. But you can get us in Apple and Spotify and everywhere else at Legends of Sport is the name of the podcast, of course. And our website is a great place to find everything Legends of Sport. Our blog, our This Day in Sports History, everything about the podcast, the archive of podcasts are on there. And that's legendsofsport.net. Of course, our Instagram, at Legends of Sport. 
And my photography, which people can follow, you know, now, especially during the playoffs yeah. at all times, at ADB Photo Inc. This week's episode, uh, first WNBA uh, president, Val Ackerman, who we just found out, did uh, Andy's first contract with the league. Fun fact. That's pretty amazing. Um, Andy, what, what, what have you thought about the growth of the league? I mean, I've always thought of it, it was so amazing and impressive that so many players, current NBA players, come back during the offseason, really, to support uh, the WNBA. And again, no one was more supportive than Kobe Bryant. I mean, I saw him go to more Sparks games than Lakers games post-retirement. Again, he went there with Gigi. Gigi obviously wanted to play as well. Uh, talk about the growth of the league and, again, the NBA players really supporting the league as well. Well, you know, it kind of takes me back, Arash, to to the beginnings because my daughter, who's now 28, <laughs> but uh, she and her little friends in the second and third grade, we used to take like like family trips, you know, with all the parents, you know, like be about 15, 20 kids, and bring them to Sparks games. And the girl, it was all girls, of course, and the girls just loved it. They absolutely loved it. And and I, I remember to this day, uh, my daughter saying to me, "That's the court that." Kobe plays on that's the court that Shaq really and I said yeah and imagine how empowering that is as a little yeah. girl you know and then bring you know seeing these these powerful women on the court and Lisa Leslie would always come over and say hi and I'd introduce you know my kids and everybody you know to her and the rest of the team and it was just so much fun um but but the league has grown so much um in terms of allowing women the opportunity to compete on on a equal level you know um they've been working towards pay equity of course you know there's a big disparity still but the recent cba has has done a lot for the wmba players so that a lot of them don't have to go elsewhere to play overseas um and when you brought up kobe you're you're right kobe came very early i remember kobe Man, is it his second, third season coming and watching yeah. WNBA games and sitting there, and and then of course with Gigi post retirement, um, it was his mission. I think it was really his mission to elevate um, women's basketball even further. And this obviously legendary stories of him taking Gigi around to the different venues and to women's basketball at UConn or wherever. And then working with WNBA stars kind of out of sight, you know, he didn't need the publicity, obviously, um, but we're learning about that now after his death, how, how influential he was on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, it just, you know, continues to speak volumes about how great he is and what his legacy will always be. Exactly. I mean, I mean, his connections with so many of the current players, uh, Sabrina, you go down the list of like the number of players that he really um, really talked to and 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 um, took under his wing was very impressive. Again, yeah, for sure, the yeah. uh, season begins uh, today. Can't wait for it. And by the way, as Mandy um, mentioned, if you haven't been to Crypto.com or Arena in a while, a very affordable, fun way for you to go to a game. It's it's one of my favorite things to do to go with my brother, my dad, my mom. It, it's really a fun time. So with that said, let's go to the uh, second part of the Legends of Sport Friday conversation. It is the first WNBA president, Val Ackerman. 
Yeah, you know, Val, you had an interesting problem on your hands from the start of the WNBA because Houston was an instant dynasty and with, with Cynthia, Cynthia Cooper. How, how did you try to maintain competitive balance in those early years in terms of parity in the league? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, we actually screwed up with Houston. I mean, I'm not joking. I mean, we really we stacked them without mm-hmm. knowing it. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we had a system for stocking the teams in the first year, frankly, with an eye to trying to balance things out. We wanted a, a balanced league. So, we, you know, we did our best. Um, Renee Brown was on my staff. She knew players. I, had, I hired Lynn Barry, who had been the USA Basketball Women's National Team Director, who retired after Atlanta to come on. So we had some expertise on the players. And and we really did try to spread things around, but you know Cynthia, you know so Cheryl Swoops, we, you know we put in Houston because mm-hmm. she was from Texas, and that was kind of a marketing move. <laughs> Same with Lisa Leslie being in L.A. and mm-hmm. Rebecca Lobo in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we had frankly we had no idea how good Cynthia Cooper was. She was playing <laughs> in Europe. Yeah. She coincidentally had been at SC. Andy. Yeah. You know, was sure. I shot played. her in high school. I mean in college. Right. Yeah. It was a great college player, but then because there was no pro league, when she graduated, she, like many others, went overseas, kind of fell off the screen. Hmm. And, you know, there she was out there, and we, I think my memory is that her mother lived in Houston (laughs) and had some health issues. So we sort of said, okay, we were kind of, Hmm. you know, being sympathetic and said, okay, we'll put Coop in in Houston. We just didn't know, and she turned out to be... Incredible. And then adding to that, um, we did a blind lottery, not weighted, for the first WNBA draft. Mm -hmm. Um, Every team equally weighted. And, you know, Houston winds up at the first pick in the draft, and they get Tina Thompson. Right. <laughs> Another Hall so, of Famer. Yeah. You know, bang. And then they, on their own, figured out that Jeanette Arcane, the great Brazilian sure. star, was, oh, yeah. was, you know, they found her and got her. So kind yeah. of out of, and, and Van was the perfect coach to manage these, you know, great stars. Yeah, that's true. He so was. So we didn't, we didn't intend for that to happen, but I, I have to say it was among the most magical memories I have are mm-hmm. those was that dynasty and wow. those amazing crowds in Houston and what it was like for the city for mm-hmm. that team to do what they did for those four first years. Oh, absolutely. Now, I have a question that goes back to the beginnings of the WNBA. Now, I know that certain things were changed. Obviously, the clock was went from 12 minutes to 10 quarter, you know, per quarter. The ball was made smaller. The three-point line was brought in. Was there ever a discussion about doing something with the rim so that these women could dunk and, and sort of do what the men do, you know, above the rim. Was that ever part of the conversation? No, Annie, never seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we, we did do some handicapping, as you said, on the ball. Interestingly, we didn't come up, the small ball is called a size six. Mm-hmm. The men's ball is a size seven, a little bigger. Mm-hmm. But that was the ball that was being used in college and oh, okay. girls basketball. So we are thinking there was, let's, you know, let's use the same ball that girls are, and young women are using. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I remember being in the room when David told FIBA that we would like them to use the same ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. Wouldn't mind changing the international ball, which was a size seven for women to six. Uh. So now the world has a standard ball for the women's game. Uh-huh. Um, but but you know, but that was that was it. I mean, on the height of the rim, the size of the court. 
um, the shot clock, I think. I, I think we had 30 because yeah. that was standard. Right, right. You know, we were kind of trying to be more uniform. And the low rims actually, uh, you know, has not gained a lot of traction mm. in the women's game. My regret on that is we didn't test it. Mm-hmm. You forget using it. We never even got around to, hey, let's let's put 10 players in a gym, mm-hmm. lower the rim to something, you know, like 9.6 or 9.8. Yeah. Right, right. 8 feet. Right. But something a little lower. Yeah. Yeah. So we could sort of see what that did to shooting. Per- it was less about dunking for me than about better shooting percentages. Mm, okay. Less missed easy shots. Yeah. Because the uh, women don't jump as high. So, yeah. But no, it, it was never. And it's interesting. No one's really picked up on it since. But I, I'd still, I, I for one would love to see it experimented with at some level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, Val, in, in the NBA's 14th season in existence, the average league-wide att- attendance was 5,000. And the WNBA at the same time was almost... 7,900, I believe. It took the NBA 30 seasons to average more than 10,000 fans per game. You know, I know the WNBA has had a a modest following, but people really, I think, forget that men's basketball was very similar up through the early to mid-80s, you know, when it exploded with Magic and Michael and and Larry Bird. What are the the challenges to building the audience, picking up the ratings, increasing the star wattage for players for the WNBA today? Yeah, I, well, I have I have a standard answer for that, and it's it, I would apply to any women's actually any sport. Uh, you know, I started to say any women's pro sport, but I would say any sport. And I, and I think the the secret to success lies somewhere in these three these three factors. One is the the product. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just got to have something you know in sports that people want to watch, and mm-hmm. fans are discriminating. They you know they can pick out a good competition from a from something less than that. And so the irony is the early years of the WNBA, the product wasn't what it is today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had two leagues, Andy, you may remember, mm-hmm. the, the American Basketball League was going on at oh, the same time. That's so right, it was yeah. called a rival league, yeah. that, so the player pool was split. Mm. We had teams coming together for the first time, so mm. it wasn't like they were gelled, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and so what we have, you know, between then and now is really um, night and, mm-hmm. and now day with just so much better. But I think the product will be key, and, and women's tennis is a prime example of appreciation for great product. That's one. Two, I'd say, is the promotion. You know, people have to know when you're playing, where you're playing, mm-hmm. whether you're on TV, where if you are, what time if you are. So the marketing um, is, you know, is critical. Of course, we didn't have social media back when the WNBA launched, uh, which is a big part of any league's promotional strategy now. But that's 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 important. That's why television matters, mm-hmm. form of promotion. And then lastly is scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we put the WNBA in the summer. We, we thought the summer schedule would give us better TV, hence the promotional piece, um, mm-hmm. because there were more windows available, less mm-hmm. basketball competition. Yeah. Um, but also it gets you into, okay, what day of the week? Is the game too early? Is the game too late? <laughs> yeah. You know, you get into viewer patterns, attendance patterns, conduciveness to a good crowd. Hmm. Um, so scheduling, you know, really matters, and and that's and I think that's something that 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 probably is still evolving with the league. They, as the best I know, I mean, they're still in the summer. We were ending by Labor Day in the early years. Now the season's longer. That gets you into the football season, so that has some challenges. But I think if you can sort of get around those three things and then in a sport like basketball capitalize on your stars, Mm -hmm. um, I I think you're kind of on the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, we we mentioned Rick Welts before, uh, president of the Warriors. 
He said that the advantages women have over men is their personal stories. If, if those stories are told and they're out there, it, it'll be hard not to be drawn to the sport. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I mean, I, I think it's true for every sport, but I, I did, we did find early in the WNBA that our fans, which, you know, we didn't have a super big overlap with the NBA fan base. Mm-hmm. Our fans were different, and they did seem to be more interested in stories, the cause thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact this was a women's league, not just a sports league, um, at a time when, this is 25 years ago, you know, women weren't where they are today, societally, so there was something about it that was sort of empowering. Um, and they had, you know, to your point, compelling stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And, and so we did try to work that into our communications and marketing strategy with ad campaigns that we did and the imagery we used and mm-hmm. the cause marketing that we undertook with, particularly with sponsors who maybe supported a, a like cause. Mm-hmm. So I do, I do think there's um, something to, to that. And I do think now, with, again, with social media and the ability of players to tell their stories directly, mm-hmm. that should help, mm-hmm. you know, so they can, they can be on, uh, you know, whatever Instagram platform or or whatever platform it is, or work through a publication like Players Tribune, which is constantly putting out, you know, personal stories of players that they mm-hmm. pen. Uh, you know, I, I think that can that can certainly help. Mm-hmm. But I do think it, it can't be everything. I think back to my earlier comment. It is about the product. You got to have a game. I mean, it's about the game. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. do you have? A, is it a close game? Is it entertaining? Are people respectful of the accomplishments of the? Are they doing things that normal people can't do? And rivalries. Right. You right. know, look at the NBA, and you know well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a league built on rivalries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, and so that's it's got to be the same way in a women's team sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with a you know, women's individual sport. I mean, it's like women's tennis. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was about Chris, you know, Chrissy and Martina, mm-hmm. or yeah. about Steffi. you know, Maria. Yeah. Right. I mean, Steffi versus whoever. <laughs> yeah. Monica Seles. I mean, that's yeah, right. carrying women's tennis, and and we need you know women's. Women's team sports need need their analogous center mm-hmm. rivalries. Yeah, well, well you, you talk about the game being first and foremost, and uh, I love what the NBA is doing and the WNBA is doing now to sort of cross promote the WNBA through the NBA. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, the players you're seeing the stars coming out to the WNBA games. You're seeing them comment on on the quality of play and the fact that they want to bring their kids out you know i've been bringing my daughters now as a second generation to see the wnba play since you threw up that first ball in 97 <laughs> and uh you know i think i think um it just adds to the credibility of women's basketball which is a lot of fun to watch and people need to get out and see it so. well it certainly can't hurt i agree i yeah. mean we candidly we were doing that early on mm-hmm. i mean every time you know, Magic Johnson showed up at a game, or yeah. Larry Bird, as you know, Andy, with sure. the Pacers, you know, in an uh, executive capacity every time. He was very supportive of the fever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, whenever they whenever they came, it was sort of the, uh, mm-hmm. the royalty treatment yeah. there. Yep. But it, it certainly can help. But I do agree with you, if there can be cross-promotion... Um, with you know women's sports among each other, it's very helpful. I, I hope the same thing can happen with women's college basketball mm. and, the, and the pro league because I think there are some synergies there that are probably a bit untapped. I mean, you've got women's college basketball playing in the winter, WNBA in the summer. There's no one and done in mm-hmm. women's college in the uh, WNBA. So women's college players basically are there for four years. Mm-hmm. They build their identities. You know, if they're coming out of a program like UConn or Notre Dame, they've been on television dozens and dozens of times. 
in their college careers, mm-hmm. and so they've got some they've got their own brands. Yeah. Yeah. That that can be brought to bear, um, I think, on the on the pro game in a really important way, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I hope that uh, people on sort of both sides of that aisle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> now can do more to sort of cross promote and turn women's basketball into more of a year round proposition. Mm-hmm. I think the opportunity is there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's obviously no title one, title nine at the pro level. It's, it's you know, with the markable bear, I, I, and I understand why Candace Parker isn't making what LeBron James is making. But but what about at the executive levels? I mean, you know, I, I heard at the Oscars this year, Frances McDormand used the term uh, inclusion writers, <laughs> which is equal pay for actors and actresses. Uh, should the same thing cross over in the executive level? Sure. Great. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems obvious to me, Let's but... Let's give Val a couple of more yeah. zeros at the end of contract. I'm glad you actually made the distinction, because I do think on the player side, I think the case players are making is, is not unsympathetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, they work as hard, and you know they're the best at what they do, too. But I, having lived this, mm-hmm. um, and seeing it now, I'm on the board of U.S. Soccer, so I'm seeing it in that sport as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, there, there is and should be a correlation between uh, salaries and revenues. Mm-hmm. And the fact, the fact is, you look at men's, the most successful men's team sports, and the, and the revenues are astronomical. A lot of it is TV. Mm-hmm. A lot of mm-hmm. it is, um, you know, has been because of the growth in TV revenues over the past couple of decades. And rightly, the players are sharing in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem is, in women's team sports, we're not seeing those kinds of revenues mm-hmm. yet. I hope someday that will happen, but that's, that's just not that's not where they are. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard, in my judgment, to make the case about sort of you know, equal pay um, when the revenues are so disparate. Mm-hmm. I, I do think there's necessarily a correlation there. I'm not going to offer any you know, sort of proposals here on what the right percentage is or anything, but I do think that people who are thoughtful about that, would, you know, they need to recognize the, the connection. In terms of executives, I mean... You know, yeah, I mean, at the executive level, I mean, women, the good news here for me, somebody like me, is there are many more women working in sports. I mean, back to the early days when I was at the NBA, mm-hmm. there really weren't any senior executives there who were female. I mean, my bosses were guys. Mm-hmm. They were good to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, David and Russ among them. Gary, you know, Rick was a kind of a mentor-like friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, you know, I didn't think of them as men. I thought that of them as, you know, kind of my colleagues. Yeah. But I, did, I didn't have any women who kind of, you know, could share what it was like to be pregnant, you know, in the workforce. And <laughs> right. kind of, but the challenges were about coming back or convincing your boss you were coming back and that sort of thing. So now that that's, you know, fast forward a generation, um, I, I do think the good news is more women are... You know, are working. You know, in the college space, we're seeing many more women who are ads and commissioners mm-hmm. uh, working at the senior levels of um, of the NCAA. You know, but there's still it's still not as many as you you know someone like me might aspire to see. All right, that's all the time we have for today for another amazing episode of Legends of Sport Friday with WNBA first ever WNBA commissioner and president Val Ackerman talking about the beginnings of the league, the growth of the league, as we get into tonight, the beginning of the, the WNBA season, at least here in Los Angeles, we get the Sparks against the Mercury. Um, again, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Big WNBA fan, big Sparks fan here in Los Angeles. So excited to see how that how that all turns out. Again, Las Vegas Aces are looking very good as well. 
All right, that's all the time we have for today. Let's do it again next week. Until then, this is Arash Markazi saying stay safe and stay healthy. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hustle for the cash, so it's hard to knock it. Everybody got their own thing. Currency chasing Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.